This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest who joined me via Skype is Dana Spiota, author of four novels, including Innocence and Others, Stone Arabia, Eat the Document, and Lightning Field. Spiota lives in Syracuse and teaches in the Syracuse University MFA program. Her latest novel, Innocence and Others, tells the story of Meadow and Carrie, best friends from high school who both grew up to make films. Meadow documentaries in Carrie feature films with a feminist slant. The novel intertwines these women's stories with an older character, Jelly, who cold calls powerful men and seduces them with conversation over the phone. The novel is told in clips, mirroring the film tropes it explores. Eventually, the reader learns how all three women's lives and their individual aesthetics collide to reveal their successes and failures. Innocence and Others is about art as much as it is about friendship. It explores the difference between being in front of or behind the camera, the seduction of art, and the triad of artist, subject, and audience. We began talking about truth, and if truth exists. Well, I mean, I think that's definitely one of the big questions I was uh, thinking about. You know, it, it's, it's not just the truth of what's in the world and what's happened, which can be ascertained. Uh, there is actually a truth. But I think more of this issue of how can we, do we understand how we see the world and whether we're looking at the world in an accurate way and whether the world sees us in an accurate way, and, and our own subjectivity, and how that distorts things. So I think that was something I was very interested in, and there's a big point in the novel when some of the characters, I think Jelly and Meadow, both kind of see themselves in a different way than they're, they're accustomed to. One, because she sees herself in a film, and the other one, because she is making a film. And I think that that, that moment where you start to realize that, the, that, that you don't even see yourself accurately is... Um, is unnerving and maybe that's sort of part of of middle age or something and I've been thinking about that question a lot about how hard it is to know who you are and and know what you are at certain times in your life. Were you thinking about that originally as a philosophical concept and then you decided to look at it through the lens of film like how did film become the trope of this novel? Well it was the other way around I was thinking about film and then later on these connections came out of it. Um, usually start with the stuff first and then ideas come out of the, the things. And in this case, really characters is almost always what I start with. And this was just this woman and she was telling the story of how she began as a filmmaker. And I was interested in filmmaking. I've always been interested in films. And, um, and I thought a woman filmmaker uh, would be interesting to write about. As I was writing her sort of reminiscence, which starts the novel, which was the first thing I wrote, I realized she's she's kind of hiding things or she's she's being playful in a way. And and the novel at first I thought was going to really be about seduction and the nature of seduction, whether it's artistic seduction or romantic seduction, and the kind the kind of ways that we change ourselves to to engage someone else. And so I, I started with that. And then the, 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 as I was doing it, I realized I have this other character, Jelly, who also is really quite a seductress on the telephone. Uh, this is, takes you know place in the 80s, so there's a, uh, a technological sort of backstep that happens in the novel. 
and um, and she is also um, presents only parts of herself to other people. And and I think it's interesting because I think that we all do this to a certain extent. We all kind of show different parts of ourselves to people, uh, the things that we thought think they might respond to, and we leave out the parts they might not respond to. It's sort of a human impulse. We want to be um, liked. We want to be loved. But this is an exaggeration of that. And I was very interested in that, too. I, I remember when everybody was uh, talking about catfishing on the Internet where people pretend to be different people. And, um, and, and that idea was very interesting to me because it seemed you would almost always get caught. At some point, somebody figures out you're not the person you're pretending to be. So knowing that you're going to get caught, why do it? And I guess there's that feeling of being liberated from, from your own body when you're creating this other person. And that seems, that's kind of what a novelist does. So it was very interesting to me. Most of the book is focused on Meadows films as opposed to Carrie's, which are um, more maybe humorous chick flicks. And Meadow is making these serious documentaries. And she has this a scene in kind of in the in the first half of the book where she is putting different students and young people in front of the camera mm-hmm. and just having them sit there. And it's really interesting because she she doesn't really say anything. She just lets them be there and do what they do. And at one point, this woman, Lisa, is crying. And Meadow knows that she can undo someone. And I'm wondering if you could talk about this concept of both being in front of the camera when no one's asking anything of you, why you come and done. And then in Meadow's personality, why would she want to do this to people? Yeah, I mean, I think she's discovering the power of the camera that both people want to be filmed and it's hard for people to say no to that attention. And it is a kind of an attention, but it's also a kind of scrutiny and very few of us hold up to the kind of scrutiny of the film. And I think she's just um, so wrapped up in the power of this tool, of this technology uh, and of this art that she... Um, she doesn't really think about the subject as much as she should. And, and I think she pays a price for that. But it's mostly comes out of, I think, her obsessive love for the medium rather than any cruelty on her part. I think that's kind of a side issue. She, um, she kind of thinks it's for the greater good of telling the truth. If somebody, that, that if somebody falls apart, there's a, kind of, there's a kind of visceral reality to that that is interesting. And, uh, and should be engaged. And yeah, I mean, and she's young and she hasn't had the camera turned on her, but she does, she is aware that she asks people, you know, she says to Deke, do you want to do this? She gives him all these outs, but she's also aware, I think that it's very hard for people to say no, um, that, that we are both compelled and um, unnerved by being on camera. And this is something that I think we see today a lot with reality television with all sorts of people are constantly, you know, putting things on the internet, images of themselves in compromising positions. And you sort of think, well, why are people doing that? It just <laughs> doesn't add up. And so I was very interested in, in sort of the compulsion of uh, all those moments where uh, technology kind of exceeds our ability to understand it, where you're sort of saying, I'm going to do this thing, carry this little, uh, phone in my pocket that's actually kind of a whole movie studio 
and I'm going to film everything and I'm going to post it publicly and not really think about that and the weird consequences of that. So there is this way in which technology is entices us, and it, but it also exceeds our capacity to really understand it completely. It's almost like on Facebook when people know they have thousands of friends that include workers and family members and uh, good buddies, and they post something that only their buddies would want to see, and they don't, they really can't comprehend that all these eyes are on them. So, so I feel that's. That's interesting to me. I don't quite know how to, it's not that I know how to solve that problem, but I think, yeah, Meadow, again, is a kind of exaggerated version of some of these tendencies, but I, but I, uh, but, uh, I was very interested in how people behave um, when a camera is on them. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Dana Spiota, author of Innocence and Others. Meadow writes like a litany of her transgressions, basically after she has an incident that sort of awakens her where she reassesses everything that she's doing and looks at her filmmaking as maybe more of a selfish act. What do you think writing a a litany of your transgressions can do for, for you? I think whether you're writing it or whether you're saying it aloud, and maybe saying it aloud is even more powerful than writing it. I think you're able to to see it in front of you and admits tell yourself the truth about something or it has that feeling of it's okay to I think at one point Meadow says it's okay that I'm a if I'm a bad person I would just hate not to know it and in a way the thing she fears the most is self-deception which is the thing that she discovers in herself is that you know um, if you can understand that I did this thing and I can say that I did it and I regret doing it or I'm not going to do it, or whatever. There's something about that where you can just put it aside, and it's outside of you, and it's no longer uh, creeping up on you, and and waking you in the middle of the night, um, and making you feel, and that you have to keep hiding it or sublimating it in some way. There's something about getting it out of you, whether it's confessing, you know, to a priest, or confessing on camera, or writing it in your journal, or telling your psychiatrist. All these ways that we have created to get these things out in the open. Um, where they uh, can be sort of uh, engaged. And, and I guess we all do things. Um, we all make mistakes and we all have these flaws. So I think that admitting them or um, putting them to paper or trying to, to admit to them or trying to put them on paper is um, admirable, is a good part of, 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 uh, of a good life, I think. You have a whole section on page 141 where you're talking about the immutability of of film as something to measure yourself against and that that's what art does. It's a really beautiful passage. And I was thinking, what are you saying about literature here? One of the things I think that happens in the book and one of the things I like about novels is you have the time to kind of give a whole life, right, from childhood to adulthood. And one of the things I think is so interesting about books or pieces of art um, or a film is that you can, something can mean a lot to you when you're 18, you can read, um, you know, on the road and it can change your life. And then you can read it when you're 30 and it's the same book, um, but it feels entirely different. And so then you realize it's you, you've changed. What you find beautiful has changed. What you find wise has changed. 
what you find um, compelling has changed, or maybe, and some things haven't, you still love that one character, you know? And so, um, so I think it's a way it's, it, I'm interested in the way that people who really love art and make art, but particularly us as, as readers or, you know, rather than writers, but readers, or as people who watch films rather than filmmakers, how, um, what we love shapes who we are and shapes our identity in all sorts of ways and also reminds us of who we are. You know, I'm the person whose favorite book is X, you know, it's an interesting phenomenon to me. It's something I've noticed in my own life. And I think about it with my daughter when I say, you know, oh, I remember loving that book. Well, I remember everything about being the person who read that book. That person's still me. Um, and so that relationship that's very interactive and I find reading is very interactive and that's why I, I want to write because I think the experience of reading a good novel um, is so immersive and interactive and powerful and engaging. And, and I, I don't think almost anything comes close to it. It requires so much of you and your own imagination as a reader um, that, you, that if you really get engaged in the book, you're sort of different at the end of it. And that's a, that's an incredible experience. Have you ever had that experience with your own work where you read something you wrote a long time ago or that you wrote a short story maybe so long ago that you read again that it's different for you too? Oh, yeah. I mean, I have the feeling of such estrangement from some stuff I've written a long time ago that I can't believe I wrote it. And in some cases, I don't even remember writing it, you know. Um, when someone said, well, what was your inspiration for, you know, that section of that book? And I, I don't remember that it's in there. And then I go and look at it. And then I sort of remember writing it, but not really. Um, and, and it's mysterious to me. Uh, writing is mysterious. And the longer it is in the past, the more mysterious it is. I have had the, the terrible experience, which I think many writers have had, of reading something and not liking something I've read, written in the past. And wanting to change it, you know, really wanting to go in and edit it. Because your style changes. What you find beautiful changes as a writer. I mean, my first novel is, uh, on a sentence level, much more Baroque than this novel is. And But it would be a shame to go back and change those sentences. Because those were that was the book I needed to write when at that age, at that time. And, and, it, and it needs to be a static object. Something that... Um, is just there and I can't go back and keep changing. I can't edit it forever. Although there, the, I would like to, I mean, I feel that I want to go in and fix it, but, but that's, you know, plus I could be wrong. One of the things you said in your book that you were talking about the film, but you were talking about this concept of being a gleaner, which means looking closely at the familiar to discover what everyone else overlooks or ignores or discards. Is that what you're trying to do as you write? Yeah, I mean, there's a there's an old saying about, you know, making the familiar strange and making the strange familiar. And and like many sort of cliches, it has a lot of truth to it. I think that that one of the challenges for writing for writers is to take something that's kind of set and worn out and been perceived a million times and find something new in it. And having um, I think that opening quote that I have by throw that 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 being able to see sometimes requires just having a slight weird angle on it, you know? Sometimes it requires kind of writing deeply into it and finding some precision 
that will reveal something you never noticed before. So if it's something very simple, an everyday thing like talking on the phone or being on your computer, you kind of break it down and you try to find its particulate points that might reveal something you don't notice because you just kind of glance over it every day. So you're doing that in sort of in terms of concreteness, but you're also doing it on the sentence level too. Are you putting those two words like sky blue together because that's what we always do and we don't see the sky and we don't see the blue. So what can you do to make that new? Well, you could just you don't want to just have a synonym for blue. You want to sort of think, you want to actually go look at the sky and think, well, what does it, does it look like something else? Is it a figure of speech you're going to find? Or is it just finding the right, right color? And sometimes it's weird. It's the sound that leads you to the right place. It's the sonics of the word that are going to make it new. And all you're always trying to do is, is make it uh, visible again in some um, present way, um, rather than having a sort of recycled and processed version of the world, which you can get everywhere. There's a million people who are going to give you what you've already heard a million times. So the only thing that I can do is, is my weirdness, my own particular strangeness might notice something that will make it visible to you as a reader um, in a way that you weren't expecting, but seems true to you. You can't just say weird stuff. It has to be true. So that is always the challenge. And that's the joy of it when you get it right. But it's also the frustration when you when you can't believe how much the kind of um, seepage of of or, of kind of familiar phrases and structures and things kind of always is croaching in there and and um, and larding up the writing and making it um, kind of uh, uh, not interesting. So um, so I'm I'm very pressing on the language as much as I can, pressing on the imagery as much as I can the ideas, every part of it, the structure, to make sure that it is what it's supposed to be and not just something I borrowed and, and kind of gotten lazy about, you know? You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Dana Spiota, author of Innocence and Others. This interview was recorded via Skype. So when you started this book and then when you edited it and came to publishing it, usually, you know, there's some questions nagging at you, which is why you write the book. And we talked about some of those. Did you feel like you learned anything or something changed from the beginning to the end for you? Yeah, it always feels that way. I mean, you always think it's going to be about one thing. And then by the end, it seems to be about another thing, you know, or many other things. So I kind of thought it was going to be about seduction and con artistry and film, then it ended up being weirder than that by the end. And yeah, I was very surprised by many things in it. And I, yeah, and I thought it would be a book about friendship, which is, and it's, it was all the things I thought it would be, but, but the, um, becomes unsettling when you notice other things that are there too, that you can't deny are there. And, and, and in some ways it's hard to talk about because you, there's a kind of mystery to it. And, and, um, and I like that, people have different ideas about what they think is important in the book or what questions the book brings up. But I, I do think it's good to have questions, just different questions maybe than where you started so that something's changed for you while you were writing it. But if there's nothing at stake for you as a writer, if you already know everything you're going to do, then what's the point of writing it really? And I think one of the exciting things about reading a book is that you feel the author trying to figure things out. You feel a kind of something's at stake for the author as you're as you're reading it, it doesn't feel 
as if they're doing something that they already know how to do and, and already have all the answers for. Um, I think maybe that's why novels have can have something really wrong with them and you still really like the novel because it that sense that they're, they're, they're reaching beyond themselves in some way is very exciting. And I feel like it, it comes through in the art. Can you tell me about the title, Innocence and Others? Yeah, title is, uh, originally the title was Gleaners. And uh, I agreed that, that the title should change because nobody knows what a gleaner is or, or would care, I guess. And so um, my uh, editor had, there's a line chagrined innocent in there. So what about innocent? And, um, and then I came up with Innocence and Others because I, was, I, I thought that was an interesting tension. I, in a way, I think that the women in the book are innocent, or at least they were innocent at one point, like all of us. And so it's kind of a false dichotomy. There really aren't innocence and others. But then on the other hand, some of the people in the book that are described, like the people in the Argentinian Dirty War, who are really others, you know, they're not, how could you describe them as innocent? So, um, so yeah, so I was, so, so I'm, I was interested in, in how it kind of might raise a question in the reader's mind as she's reading. So tell me about some of your influences. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? I'm going to read something from uh, Joy Williams. She's one of my favorite writers. And this is actually um, from an essay that she wrote in a collection called Ill Nature. And the essay is called Why I Write. And, um, and she's, she's, she's kind, of, kind of making a list of all the bad things about what writing does or doesn't do or what it can't do, but why she still does it. So in a way, she's kind of doing a thing like Meadow does. In the months before my mother died, and she was so sick and, and at home, a home that meant everything and nothing to her now, she said that she would lie awake through the nights and plan the things she would do during the day when it came. She would walk the dog and buy some more pansies, and she would make herself a nice little breakfast, something that would taste good, a poached egg and some toast. And then the day would come, and she could do none of these things. She could not even get out the broom and sweep a little. She was in such depression and such pain, and she would cry. If I could do a little sweeping, just that, to sweep with a good broom, a lovely thing, such a simple, satisfying thing, and she yearned to do it and could not. And her daughter, the writer, who would be the good broom quick in her hands if only she were able, could not help her in any way. Nothing the daughter, the writer, had ever written or could ever write could help my mother who had named me. Why does the writer write? The writer writes to serve. Hopelessly, he writes in the hope that he might serve, not himself and not others, but that great, cold, elemental grace that knows us. It's interesting because it's kind of making the case for writing right there, because when she's describing that moment, her mother, these simple things um, about being able to just get up and sweep or to have a nice breakfast and not even being able to do that, and nothing the daughter's written has has can change that. But when she says she could be the broom in her mother's arms, that's a, doing something with language. It's putting language to a feeling that you have of love for your mother when she's dying that, that transforms it for me. So it makes our ability to um, endure those moments and to understand the moments and see those mom- the beauty in those moments um, more possible. So what Williams has done here is she's made the world a little better by just using language. So in a way, her writing does help tremendously. 
that great cold elemental grace is quite beautiful that knows us. I wonder what that means. And then I will think about that. I'll go about my day. And every once in a while, I'll think about this, this sentence and what it might mean. And so there's a great mystery and almost spiritual mystery in Joy Williams, in her fiction and in her nonfiction that haunts you and uh, helps you make meaning as you go about your life, helps you understand the world and see the world more clearly. It's almost uh, you know, unimaginable to live without that, having writers do that for you. Could you read something that you wrote that was maybe tricky to read or changed a lot from the first draft? Yeah, I'm going to read actually from a part at the end of the book. It is a kind of one of the characters is a minor, small role in the book, but she's an important character. She has an important role to play. And um, and I knew that writing her section would be extremely difficult, and I knew it was coming. and uh, And I really had to conjure something that was very painful. So this is another mother-daughter section, but this, um, this one is written about um, looking back on a daughter who's, who's dead and, um, and thinking about the last night that she was with her. And I was thinking when I was writing it, I had to imagine uh, being this woman and how when something happens, when you lose somebody suddenly, every moment that leads up to it has a kind of uh, radiance and you will never forget it. And it might change even in the details of what you focus on over your life, but you're going to tell yourself that story over and over again. And, and I am very interested in this idea that what the telling of your own story, which is another word for confession, what that does to you, how it changes, how you're able to cope with your life or the terms of your life. So this is, um, so I'll just read this part. Next I put you to bed, how heavy you felt when I lifted you, the weight in my arms. I carried you and I felt wobbly on my feet. I was barefoot and my toes gripped the carpet on the stairs. Your room was a mess. I unzipped your pajamas and checked that your diaper was dry. You squirmed as I zipped you up and it smelled like plastic and baby powder. You cried when I put you in your crib. So I went downstairs and took a bottle of juice from the fridge. Jason came in. And I stopped as he walked over to me and put a hand on the back of my bare thigh. He moved his hand up and I arched against him, leaned into Jason. You started to yell from upstairs. I still had the bottle in my hand and I groaned. I did, a tired sound in the back of the throat. I went up the stairs. You stood in your crib crying, big tears rolling down your red cheeks. I gave you the bottle. You instantly stopped crying and held the bottle with both hands as you sucked. I reached into the crib put my hands under your arms and picked you up. I pushed my lips to your cheek, hot and soft and a little wet from your tears. And when I pulled back, I could see you smile with the bottle's nipple in your mouth. I swung your legs back and then laid you on your back in the crib. You were so very tired and your eyelids already started to droop. I pulled the knit blanket up. I said, go to sleep, baby. And I touched your cheek, felt for a second its fullness. I smelled apple juice, baby powder, and my own cigarettes. I turned out the light and I closed the door to your room. Tell me about that. Without giving too much away, that was a woman's baby uh, dies that night. And she, there's various ideas in the book about, you hear this told earlier in the story. Um, uh, and then this is the, the kind of interior um, little prayer that this woman makes about this at the end of the story. And, um, and she's kind of um, missed perceived by the characters in the book and maybe even by the reader and so this is um, 
an important moment where we have a confession that no one's witnessing. And so that was interesting to me too. I don't know why I wanted to end on that, but, but it seemed important to have just this person on their knees thinking these thoughts in this very simple and not filmed and not performed way. But when I'm, as I was writing it, that section is really just very based on detail, precise detail, but maybe inflected with, with knowing that you would never t- touch that cheek again. So it's very important to remember what that felt like. And so it's very upsetting to write. It was very upsetting to write. It was very sad. Where do you write? I have an office and I write in my office, but sometimes I'll just need to get away from my no- I have a lot of notes and sort of, it's quite busy in here, books and things. And I'll go in the kitchen and write. I don't go to cafes. It's usually, it's somewhere in the house. And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? When I need a break and need to stop thinking about it, I do housework, laundry, cleaning, do dishes. Um, I do yard work or I go to the, for a walk or a drive. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? You know, I don't show it to anyone until it's done. That's been my habit until a draft is done. And then I give it to, I have a couple of people who read uh, writers have read early drafts and given me feedback. One is my boyfriend as a writer, and another one is a, another friend as a writer. And then I also give it to my mom. Sounds funny. <laughs> I give it to my mom, and she usually says, "Oh, it's your best work." Um, <laughs> uh, so she doesn't really give me much feedback, but but she gives me encouragement. And then, um, uh, but she always says something, and what she notices is interesting to me. She's a good. She loves to read. She's a good reader. She's on my side. And she, she notices things that, I, that tell me what the book is about. And then my, my um, agent and then my editor. And then, of course, everybody has comments, particularly the editor. And how have you dealt with rejection? You know, that's always hard to deal with, really. Yeah, I mean, I try not to think about it. You have to have a lot of compartmentalization. Um, there's a lot of, uh, you have to be able to, to put your work, separate your work from the reception of the work, if you can good or bad, because um, uh, it can be very distracting. And, and, um, and I, yeah, I could never be on Twitter for this reason. You know, I, I, I can't, the constant feedback loop is, I like to be in this little world of writing and, and have it be very uh, uh, far from other people. And then, uh, then it goes out into the world and you get these responses. And then you want the response, the response is great. But a negative response or a rejection, you know, doesn't, it's never going to feel good. It's, it's going to feel bad. And what is your favorite word? I have a lot of favorite words. Uh, I like words that have interesting etymology. And I like words that sound really good to say in your mouth. And I like words that mean things that I like. So uh, I like the word astonish. Um, it has, it actually, the etymology, it comes from, it's a Latin word. It has, it means to thunder out which I think is so cool. Um, exalt is a nice word, which means to, X means out. Exalt is leap, so out, leap. I like understanding the history of the word and it helps me use the word in um, a new way. Um, I like ecstatic, which means out of place. And I like the word radiant. I just think that's a beautiful word, radiant. Um, so those are my favorite words for the moment. 
You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Dana Spiota, author of Innocence and Others. This interview was conducted on Skype. The First Draft theme music was composed and performed by Murph Mahaffey. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing, and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.